Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining me is my good friend Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He is also uh, affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, as well as the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts, not only on the Russian military, uh, but Russian unmanned systems and international unmanned systems. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Wouldn't be Monday without you. Uh, Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much, Vargo. Good to be back. Before we get started, a quick word from our sponsor, HII, is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering the advantage. Uh, Sam, um, a lot to talk about. Uh, Obviously, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin reluctantly throwing his hat in the ring for another six year presidential term. But I wanted to start uh, with uh, the gloominess uh, in Washington uh, about uh, Ukraine. That was sort of isolated in some strategic circles, whereas now, going to all of these holiday parties, it's like the number one thing people are talking about. Um, The U.S. uh, US aid, unfortunately, has stalled. There were warning uh, calls uh, from the White House that, look, this is imperative to get uh, money flowing again. There's increasing dissent in Kiev as the um, conflict uh, grows more stalemated. Russia is improving its capabilities, although there were, and we'll talk about that in a moment, some uh, very impressive American capabilities that are going to be heading to Ukraine soon as well. Casualty rates for Russians have been very high, but the toll also has been heavy on Ukraine. Where do we stand right now on the battlefield? Because there are some spots, whether it's Avdivka and a couple of other places, where you know every everybody's attention is on Israel and Hamas. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of casualties a day in in some of these uh, running uh, battles that we have in in Ukraine. Even before you know, as the weather worsens and the like, where where are we right now? Well, the situation has indeed become way more static than in the spring. And as the Ukrainians themselves have admitted, as uh, Ukrainian uh, military officials have admitted, there is a stalemate. And now we can say it publicly. Uh, There's been a lot of um, movement on both sides, but it's rather incremental and across very small distances. In fact, some Russian military bloggers are bragging that they were able to advance one kilometer over a span of several months, and obviously at the expense of many, many lives. Uh, this doesn't mean that uh, Ukraine is, uh, is is losing in this sense, because it is able to hold Russians at bay. Russians are unable to advance further, and the Ukrainians are unable to advance further as well. And uh, a lot of this has to do with the fact that both sides have a lot of aerial assets in the air, such as drones for intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, combat, target tracking, attacking, uh, stuff we've been talking about for many, many months. And it is these aerial assets which are preventing the concentration of forces and any significant breakthroughs. So there is a, a technological and positional stalemate for now, but it doesn't mean that it's going to remain into the next year because technology also matures. Uh, both sides are working on specific um, ways to break the stalemate. Um, but it's not exactly clear what that would look like in the coming months. The war is approaching the second year mark. And so Ukraine is able to hold off. Ukraine held Russians at bay for two years. Um, 
And so there's no reason to suspect that it won't be able to do so going forward. Uh, Ukraine is also trying to rely on its own. It is trying to develop its own technologies, its own systems. Uh, but obviously it does need international and American help in this. But again, Russians are also unable to make any significant breakthroughs. There's a lot of comments in the Russian um, sort of telegram uh, uh, discussion uh, environment uh, or, or commentary environment that in the spring something will happen. In the spring there will be breakthroughs, but there's no evidence of that yet right now because both sides are unable to make any significant progress going forward. Are there any concerns about the stability in the government uh, in Ukraine as far as you're concerned? Right? I mean, a lot of talk that Zelensky is coming under more criticism and it'll be only a matter of time before this, you know, truce in uh, the Ukrainian body politic fails. I mean, I think a lot of people would say that they don't think Ukraine would have been getting the international assistance had it not been from Zelensky for Zelensky and the way that he appealed globally. Is that something that could have a dynamic impact if Vladimir Zelensky is not? in the seat next year, do you think? Well, that's not entirely clear at this point. Uh, obviously, everyone is banking on, Zelen on Zelensky staying in power and uh, leading the country. And obviously, the country understands that it needs his leadership, his charisma, to make sure that the aid is flowing, to make sure that Ukraine war is on the map and is on the agenda of world leaders and many other countries. So again, I, I'm not entirely sure that we should be talking about Zelensky's absence from power uh, just yet. Obviously, the war has taken a very heavy toll and has um, forced Ukraine to expend a lot of resources. But again, it is uh, Zelensky's leadership that is making sure that Ukraine is able to fight, to hold Russia at bay, to extract a heavy casualty toll on the Russians, while, again, maintaining um, Ukraine as an independent state. Let me uh, take you to the question of new capabilities. You know, we talk a lot about the kind of capabilities the Russians uh, have been fielding, but also Ukraine is about to get a lot of very novel capabilities from the United States. Even though uh, Andrew unveiled its Roadrunner and Roadrunner M uh, autonomous uh, system, nobody was specific about where it's going nor what the customer is, but there is a, um, a kind of an understanding that it is Ukraine, that it, it is optimized for air defense uh, against Shaheds and a number of other systems. First, your take on Roadrunner, uh, but also how systems, novel systems like that could actually change the dynamic uh, because uh, Valery uh, Zaluzhny, uh, Ukraine's chief of defense staff, has said, look, the only way we might be able to prevail is a real Western injection of novel technology, and this would, this would do it. What's your sense of Roadrunner and the impact systems like that will have? Well, when uh, the technology was unveiled a couple of weeks ago, um, I was asked to comment on it. And I did say that it does look like this technology was made with Ukraine war in mind. And the defense against UAVs like the Shahads or against loading munitions in general should not uh, cost more and should not be uh, resource heavy. So that, again, the total cost of defending against such threats should not outweigh uh, the cost of defending. Sorry. <clears throat> And the whole point behind technologies like the Roadrunner is that the cost of defending against uh, aerial threats like the Shahed drones must not outweigh uh, the actual um, the actual cost of um, the threat itself. And so uh, Ukraine has been um, using a different set of uh, principles, tactics, and technologies to drive down the cost of defending against the Shaheds. 
And so if uh, Roadrunner is actually scaled enough where it's cheap enough to be manufactured in truly large quantities so it can go after individual aerial threats like the Shahed drones or the Kiran drones that Russia is manufacturing, then it would be highly applicable to the war in Ukraine. Again, um, Ukraine is facing a significant threat from Russian missiles, from long-range drones, and um, the cost of defending against these threats has been rather heavy on Ukraine. So technologies like the Roadrunner come at a point where it is absolutely essential to have a large-scale defense against Shahed's. And Russia has demonstrated that it is capable of launching a very large number of these aerial uh, munitions uh, followed by missiles against Ukrainian targets. So again, it's all about the cost and it's all about the capability. And the capability has been proven in testing. Now it's all about the cost, whether or not the Roadrunner can actually be cheap and plentiful system to be employed countrywide in Ukraine against Russian threats. Um, let me uh, take you uh, to uh, the, uh, I think, completely unsurprising announcement by Vladimir Putin, uh, somehow reluctantly saying, I'm, I'm willing, after a lot of debate, willing to serve uh, again as Russia's uh, president to an adoring, applauding crowd. Um, what, what does that mean, uh, if anything? Uh, or is it just a, a symbol that, you know, he changed the constitution, he indicated he would be dictator for life, and he's actually just doing it? To the Russian government, to the Russian people, this means continuity. This means political stability, especially after the shocks of the summer and the Prigozhin rebellion. Uh, Putin has to demonstrate that he's capable of leading the nation, that he is in fact in control, and that all power really concentrates in his hands. And uh, there really isn't any viable substitute to uh, his leadership the way he presents himself. And so, um, of course, in, a, in an utterly predictable way, he... He states that he's going to run for election once again and obviously win again. There's no competitors to him. Uh, the only, I guess, um, uh, the only real unknown here is his own health. There's been a lot of rumors about his health, and each time he he disappears from you uh, from view for days and sometimes weeks at a time. All kinds of rumors are swirling. But he's 72 now, and obviously, any 72 year old person is going to experience any number of health issues. And uh, if those health issues are exacerbated by an enormous stress of running a country in the midst of a war, like Russia is, and um, all of that is going to put a lot of pressure on his health. In six years, he'll be 78. And uh, that may not necessarily mean that he's too old to hold power. But um, again, he, he is not a spring chicken the way he was 23 years ago. Uh, but it's all about uh, it's all about basically communicating stability, security. It's uh, it's communicating to the Russian people who may have been very concerned about uh, the state of the country this summer and the state of the war, that not only will the war continue, but Russia will continue fighting and that Russia will continue as one country that's united with Putin as its, as its leader. Uh, let me ask you one last uh, question. Uh, the Mothers of Serving Soldiers and Fallen Soldiers is a very, very powerful group uh, in Russia. Um, there have been some protests, and then the government responded by giving extremely generous uh, death benefits um, to to quiet that group. Um, how much instability is there in Russian society now from mothers? Uh, right, I mean, there was a sense uh, because of sanctions, oligarchs will turn. It didn't. The war economy has actually been good to everybody. What what are what's the stability like, and does the mothers group become a wild card in this? Uh, or is that completely irrelevant at this point? 
Well, they're not completely irrelevant. Obviously, they can um, they can make very public statements uh, against um, against their um, significant others serving in the war, dying in the war, not getting enough benefits. Obviously, all of this is helped by social media because any group of people today in Russia can go on social media and post uh, a video on Telegram or any other channel where it can go uh, viral across the country and the world. And so I think the Russian government is cognizant of the fact that discontent can spread quickly, but to what extent it is actually going to impact the rest of society, uh, well, um, that impact is probably going to be very, very minimal. A lot of um, a lot of discontent and a lot of uh, um, a lot of anger coming from um, this mother's organization is uh, really dependent on the fact that some of um, some of their significant others have not been paid or they've not received death benefits or they're serving in bad conditions. And so financial incentives do play a role in in placating at least part of their discontent. Overall, again, we've talked about this before, Russian society is resigned to this war and people aren't necessarily going to get angry as long as they personally are not affected. And you just mentioned that the economy hasn't buckled. In fact, the economy is churning along. Um, uh, there's a lack of... Um, there's lack of many jobs in Russia, so the employment outlook actually looks good for, for many people uh, because a lot of um, parts of the economy and industry industries are working for the war effort. They're basically, um, uh, they're basically uh, working with lots of government contracts, so there's a lot of money available. Um, and uh, again, a lot of people are reluctant to say anything public about this war. And as long as they're not affected or their relatives or significant others are not affected directly, people aren't going to say anything. And they've learned uh, the hard way that um, saying something against Putin can actually lead to very bad um, conclusions. And um, it can lead to very bad things happening to a lot of people in the country. And so there's also the acceptance that no matter how bad things may get, it is always better not to rise against the government because what Putin and his circle have uh, communicated to the people is that any chaos or any instability right now is bad for the country. Uh, and so that's why Putin is running again for office. Uh, there aren't necessarily going to be any major significant changes in the government. He's not changing heads of departments or heads of ministries. These are people who are staying on and serving the country and serving Putin as well. So yes, uh, the, the Soldiers Mothers Organization is nationwide. It can tap into the popular discontent, but ultimately this discontent and their actions are going to be limited when it comes to actually influencing the rest of the country and actually um, trying to sort of communicate an alternative um, message about this war to the rest of the people. Uh, absolutely fascinating. Thanks as always, uh, Sam, uh, for joining us and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thank you. And a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Uh, Byron, was great to see you at the Aspen uh, Security Forum last week and hope you guys are, had a terrific weekend. We did, Vagan. It was good to see you there, too. It was a very good event, I thought. 
Uh, it was a very good event, thought-provoking as all as always, uh, but needed a little bit more networking time. Uh, unfortunately, they had a terrific uh, program and want to get through it, and unfortunately, doesn't leave as much time uh, to uh, hang out and chit chat. Uh, Byron, m- most of uh, you know Washington and the nation are looking at a bit of a wind down. Uh, going into the holidays, the timing of which is going to be good for folks to actually get a, a, a nice, generous amount of time off. Um, that's not exactly how you're looking at things. What What's on your radar screen? Because it was another interesting note uh, on your part this week. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Vago, you know, we, we still have to see the National Defense Authorization Act get passed. You know, you guys dealt with that on the Friday show. And, you know, I, I think that's going to be a done deal. If it slips into January, I still think ultimately Congress is going to pass it. You know, but some of the other things that I'm going to be watching for, um, there's an L3 Harris meeting, uh, kind of investor meeting on Monday evening and then Tuesday. So, you know, that's one of the few contractor investor meetings before the end of the year, see what they have to say, particularly about the budget and, you know, really what's going on with the, the overall defense sector. But, um, the, the three things that I kind of called out in the note were first, um, the replicator program, you know, the, the fact that uh, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Kath Hicks, had said, you know, there should be an announcement made on this in mid-December. Um, and then, you know, I, I just wanted to riff, we talked a little bit about it last week, but kind of this just broadly what's going on in the international security environment. And, and the one to pick on is Venezuela, Guiana. And then the final thing is, you know, the Israeli-Hamas war and what some of the broader ramifications of that could be. So I could I could walk through each of those if you want or whatever you want to. Absolutely. Right. I mean, uh, we saw uh, just before uh, the Reagan Forum and you and I discussed it this week. And indeed, we talked about it on yesterday's program as well, uh, a little bit about Roadrunner uh, and and Sam Bendet at the top of the show addressed it as well. Um, kind of the potentially breakthrough nature uh, of the technology. And and just like uh, General uh, Zaluzhny, the Ukrainian commander, has said, hey, you know, that's what we need is a, a new generation of technology. And it looks like it's going to be flowing there. Walk us through what your expectations are and, and what you expect or what you hope to hear uh, from uh, uh, Deputy uh, Secretary Hicks when it comes to replicating. Well, yeah, I, th- I think the key things are going to be, uh, and it was interesting, you know, because Doug, Doug Beck spoke at Aspen and he really didn't dwell on this. I mean, uh, he may have uttered the word replicator, but nothing really kind of teasing up an imminent announcement or really explaining a lot more what it, what it was. And it, he wasn't really asked about it, I, which I thought was also a little bit surprising. But, you know, I think there are three questions for me. You know, who wins? Um, you know, we don't know if it's Andorral or one of the other defense tech startups. It could be one of the large defense contractors. It, it could be someone we don't know you know, or, or just not on the radar screen. I think the other really- Or a or an innovative company paired with somebody that might be a mass manufacturer, for example. Absolutely. Uh, there, there, there's there's all sorts of, you know, it's it's a, you know, a grab bag, really. But I think right. if it's a defense tech startup, it's going to be sending a, a pretty interesting message. Um, and we've talked about some of the messaging that had gone on uh, earlier this year with things like the, the award to Jet Zero for a blended wing body um, concept uh, by the Air Force. And then uh, some awards that have been made for new uh, solid propellant rocket motor entrance to the market. But so that's one question is who wins this? I think the other the other real critical one, for me at least, is how big a program will this be? You know, the deputy secretary has said, 
Um, you know, it's not a new program or record. You know, we've got the existing money. If this turns out to be like a 20 or $25 million program, I think there's going to be a collective yawn and and really a great sense of disappointment that this was not the, the program that provide a scaling opportunity to really show, you know, that you can do these things in, in you know, larger quantities at faster time frames, if, if that's the real um uh, plan for this program. So if it's more like a hundred or five hundred million dollar opportunity um, over the next two to three years, I think that's really going to get people's attention uh, broadly in the defense sector, but also in the venture capital community. And frankly, it may get the attention of some of our adversaries if this thing is really going to put rubber to the uh, to the road on <clears throat> on scaling a capability that we don't currently have deployed. And I guess that's the the last issue for me is so what's the mission of this um you know you mentioned roadrunner you know I, I think a lot of the concept about this being a, you know a kamikaze drone kind of like the ones that are being used at scale uh, by russia and ukraine against uh, each other i'm not sure of that vago i mean you know you really need something different if you're looking at the defending the strait of taiwan it may right. not be an, an aerial system. It could be a, a sea surface system. It could be all of the above. I mean, you know, I've heard earlier comments that, wow, we may need a replicator program um, for communications devices. We, we you know, a space assets, uh, very small payloads <clears throat> that can be launched right. could be another application. Of this. So I think the mission, you know, that it's going to be an important broader message that um, that DOD is going to be sending to, to industry and our allies and, and uh, competitors. Uh, I think it's going to be interesting, right? I mean, I think Replicator can work and should work as easily, you know, uh, furnishing a lower end need maybe that Ukraine has, as well as maybe a higher end need that we need uh, in the Indo-Pacific. But I, but I, but I take your point. Um, l let's go to Venezuela and Guyana, uh, right? I mean, at a time when we've kind of got our hands full with Ukraine, Israel, Hamas, trying to deter China. Now we've got kind of something new in our hemisphere that could be potentially problematic. How are you looking at this? Um, look. You know, from a military standpoint, you know, it's not going to be uh, it's not going to really shape or reshape defense markets. Um, you know, Venice, Guiana, I think, has a military. If you look at the military balance uh, that's published by IISS, you know, their military is around thirty four hundred um, active duty personnel. Right. I think something like six light armored vehicles. There was an announcement that the U.S. was conducting um, some exercises with the Guiana, but you know their their air force as it exists is frankly a couple of helicopters and light uh, light aircraft. Uh, you know, no combat capability at all. Venezuela is kind of a different kettle of fish, um, given the size of their military. You know, it's a lot of of Russian equipment that that had been provided um, in years, and there's probably some Cuban. Um, advisory involvement and well as well as us too. So, you know, but but it kind of goes back to something we talked about earlier, Bago, and that's this concept of entropy. And just just you know, when you see a country, um, you know, put up a referendum that basically annexes or, or has their voters approve the annexation of two thirds of another country, right. um, you know, that in and of itself should be alarming. <clears throat> and if Venezuela follows through with force, um, you know, the area that they're, uh, they've claimed is pretty sparse. Um, you know, it's about an hour flight time from Georgetown, Guiana to Caracas, but 
just goofing around with Google Maps, um, you know, the drive time is something like 34 hours. So <laughs> the road network is is virtually non-existent. The ability of Venezuela to really project force in this, in, into this uh, area that they've claimed, I think is kind of suspect. But, 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 you know, if there's not a, a stronger stand that's taken, um, if in fact Venezuela does opt to use military force, you know, I kind of put this in the same category as um, Azerbaijan and Karabakh uh, last, I guess it was September, you know, when in a 24 hour period, they basically ejected, what, 100,000 people and, and claimed the territory they'd been in dispute and fought over. Um, and really nothing was done um, you know, no, no harsh sanctions, right. no attempt to isolate Azerbaijan for that particular use of force. And so, you know, you kind of just add this to um, the Russian invasion at scale of Ukraine, you know, which you guys continue to talk about and I continue to think about too. Um, hey, it's just another one of those instances where something's happened. You know, we haven't, we haven't slapped all these sanctions on Venezuela. It's not like the UN has been convened to, you know, send a peacekeeping force to deter G Venezuela from invading Guyana. I mean, it's just, it's it's part of this slow deterioration in the national and really the global security environment. It may ultimately have positive ramifications for defense contractors, but I'm not necessarily certain if that's all going to be to the benefit of U.S. contractors. I, I think you have to look at the, the sector globally and kind of pick and choose on that basis. Um, we've got a couple of minutes uh, left, and I want to get your take on Israel's uh, war uh, on uh, Hamas. I mean, going back to Ukraine, right? I mean, uh, President Zelensky, and I didn't discuss this with uh, Sam at the top of the show, I mean, we were talking about uh, effectively um, the uh, you know support for uh, Ukraine ultimately and where it's going to go, which resides obviously in, in Congress more than the administration, which is still being supportive uh, of, of Ukraine. Talk to us a little bit about Israel's Hamas war and what you think the knock-on consequences of this are going to be, especially well, after the United States. Yeah, it's, just something, this yeah, it's just, just something to watch. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that you're now entering, you know, to a continued uh, an operation that's inevitably going to uh, result in civilian casualties. But I think the bigger question is going to be well, where do Gazans live? Um, you know, how, how do they survive the winter? I mean, it's it's not going to be super cold, but it can get rainy and, you know, temperatures in the 40s uh, in, in nighttime in, in January and February. So I just think that in this environment where, um, you know, you are starting to see more pushback on uh, on the fate of Gaza, um, the the UN resolution that the the US had vetoed. Um, you know there were some comments by the Saudi Foreign Ministry on this uh, today. So I just don't know. I, I still think the direct impact of the Israel Hamas war on US defense contractors is going to be very limited. You know, so yeah, some some tank cartridges get sent, but it's not going to be a big needle mover for the big contractors. But I do worry a bit about, hey, what happens if this really starts to turn Arab Arab public opinion against um, against the United States? And if that happens, you know, at the margin, does that start to impact the position of contractors in the region? We're we're a long way from that, but um, you know, it kind of intrigued on November 29th, um, Embraer and Sami, the Saudi Arabian military industries group, signed an MOU. 
uh, on cooperation and for the promotion of the C-390. And, and Saudi Arabia has one of the largest C-130H fleets um, in the world. That's, that's a big opportunity. And if it doesn't go to uh, really at this point, Lockheed Martin with the C-130J and Ember, you know, it, it's those sorts of things you look at at the margin and say, huh, you know, countries can and do send messages when they disapprove of other countries' policies. Um, and uh, I should say, right, I mean, the 390 has been doing pretty well uh, yeah. with some of its they recent up, wins. They picked up, yeah, uh, an order from South Korea, which was which was kind of intriguing, too, so uh, for what it's worth. And we've got about 30 seconds, Byron, week ahead. House Armed Services Committee is doing a December 12th hearing on the F-35 program. Association of All Crows is doing their annual international symposium and convention the 11th through the 13th, Hudson Institute and NDIA look like they're holding a very interesting event on joint integration and interoperability symposium. It's basically about JADC2. Admiral Sir Tony Radican, the UK Defense uh, Chief of Staff, is speaking at RUSI on December 13th. There, there are lots of other smaller events on uh, kind of broader geopolitical issues. And as I mentioned, the L3 Harris meeting is taking place the 11th through the 12th. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Byron, always a pleasure. Thanks very much. Break a leg this week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so very much. Thank you very much, Fargo. Cheers.